Welcome to The Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouli-Rajamandi. Today we have a conversation with Ariel Seidman, CEO of HiveMapper. If you're not familiar with HiveMapper, it's one of the fastest growing, and in my opinion, most exciting projects that is using Helium right now. I think that anyone who's into this podcast will be interested in learning about HiveMapper, and maybe even grabbing your own dash cam, driving around and participating in building the map. Before we get to that though, I have some personal news. I have officially joined the board of the Helium Foundation, and I'm super excited to work with all the awesome people there to continue steering this ship in the right direction. I really value the opportunity to take this position, and just know that I'll be bringing the same community voice that you've heard on this podcast since day one into the room when serious topics are being discussed, negotiated, and planned. Anyway, I learned a ton from this discussion that I had with Ariel. I think HiveMapper is an incredible project. It takes a lot of notes from the Helium playbook and also improves on some key areas where they've really taken things to a new level with their own creative twists. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ariel. Ariel, what is HiveMapper? We're building a new map, right? So everybody knows what Google Maps says. Uh, there's kind of two parts of Google Maps almost, right? There are on one side, people like you and I using Google Apps as consumers. Um, and there's billions of those people, you know, using Google Maps every single day as consumers. And then in addition to that, there's like four or five million businesses who pay Google Maps to use their maps, right? Even if you never use Google Maps as a consumer, uh, you know, by opening up their app on your iPhone or Android or going to the desktop on Google, you're still interacting with Google Maps, right? You're going to Uber, you're going to Yelp, you're going to uh, an insurance application, your local government website, right? All of these are using Google Maps in some way and they're paying them. And the problem with Google is it's a very, very expensive way to build a map, Right. For people who are from the Helium community, right, like building wireless networks is just crazy expensive. The same thing is true with maps, right? So those Google Street View cars that you see driving around collecting imagery, collecting data, uh, all sorts of location data, each of those costs like roughly half a million dollars, right? And so even Google can only afford, you know, X number of those, right? So if you think about this, you know, maybe a place like downtown San Francisco, they're updating maybe once a year with those Google Street View cars, you know, maybe a place like suburban Austin, every two years, you go to like Lagos, Nigeria, if they even have coverage, it's every five to seven years, right? That's how expensive it is and how kind of outdated it is, right? The world is changing constantly. So what, what HiveMapper is doing is saying, look, we're going to integrate the data collection experience in terms of how we go build the maps into people's daily lives, Right. And so the idea is you go out, you buy this dash cam. You can just go to hivemapper.com, buy the dash cam, you install the dash cam, and then you just drive, right? You just do what you normally do. And all that imagery data is ultimately getting uploaded to HiveMapper. We take that imagery data and we run it through like a whole bunch of computer, uh, computer vision technologies, machine learning processes to extract out relevant information, right? speed sign information, lane width information, the street address, all basically every single object around you, we're pulling that information out. And that's one of the sources of which we build this map. And then we go and monetize it with businesses who get access to the mapping APIs and they integrate and they pay for those, right? Just like they kind of pay for Google Maps today and they pay for other data sources today, they pay us for that, right? So our primary customer are those business-to-business -business customers 
who are already integrating with Google Maps and others to get this data, right? Ours is fresher, right? Because it's integrated to people's daily lives, right? It's not just like that Google Street View, you know, you know, car goes once a year, once every three years. Like we'll see a location much, much more frequently than a Google Street View car ever will, quite frankly. And our costs are a lot lower, right? Um, and then from an incentive perspective, uh, you know, we definitely took a page out of the Helium playbook here, and we use a very similar incentive mechanism to say, look, if you're going to help us build this global map by buying the dash cam, installing the dash cam, and if this map becomes something really important and really valuable to all these customers, then you're going to be economically aligned with us, right? And this is really important in the mapping industry, and then I'll shut up and we can go on to the next question, but this is really important, right? Because in the mapping industry, let's take Waze as an example, right? Waze uh, you know, built a great app. It was awesome. Uh, what people don't realize is that in addition to you and I driving around, collecting data, and then sharing that data back with Waze to help them build their map, there were 30,000 people, these unpaid map editors, map QA, sitting behind a screen every single day, editing a map, okay? And like, they spent like hours, hours, right? Like this is tedious work. Waze ultimately got sold to Google for like $1.3 billion. Those Waze editors did not make anything, right? So the investors made out, the employees made out, these Waze map editors made nothing. I think that's wrong. And I think crypto, the model that Helium uses, the model that we use, really you know, creates a, a big shift in the kind of alignment of where does value accrue to. Um, and I think we correct one of the sins that in my view has been kind of present within the mapping geospatial world for you know decades now. Yeah, it's certainly a really interesting model and an, an awesome use of like something similar to the helium tokenomic model, which you know I'm, I'm always thinking of can do things apply using this model because it almost seems like it's a new version of capitalism that is essentially giving the ownership to the people who are creating the value and that's pretty interesting it very very applicable clearly via your examples to maps right Thirty thousand contributors well however many tens of thousands of contributors creating a map completely for free and then all the value accruing to essentially the tech giants who are using their product these map makers and editors have created to, you know, sell ads, sell all these other uh, things. And th so it sounds like from a purely economic point of view, HiveMapper is looking to create like a new start when it comes to how people are rewarded for contributing to maps. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you go back, I don't know, seven years ago, 10 years ago, I don't think most people appreciate it. They're like, oh, this is a little bit of data about, you know, my neighborhood. I'm going to like go collect this you know, set of pictures or GPS traces or edit this map. And, you know, they just kind of viewed it as like so small, the amount of data that they were actually contributing that it just didn't have like a ton of value. The thing is, is that each individual user on its own didn't have a lot of value, but the collective effort, that enterprise value that they were creating for that entire data asset was incredibly high. I think it was like, you know, if you're just sitting one person doing this one thing, you don't fully think about that or appreciate that. And, but I think the cat is out of the bag at this point, right? I think most people start to appreciate like just how valuable their personal data is and especially when it can be organized and, 
you know, aggregated with everybody else's. And so I think people are like a lot more skeptical as they should be. So I think that's definitely like works in our favor in terms of like, no, like this is my freaking data. This is my camera. If I'm going to give it to you, like what am I getting in return? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of an uh, old adage that I saw in Hacker News probably around like 2010 that was uh, criticizing like this idea of Web 2.0, right? They called it Web 2.0, you create all the content, we keep all the revenue, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. But it's accurate, right? All these giants have collected so much crowdsourced data, right? This is the power of the internet. We have this basically yeah. global connectedness that's sourcing, that is that is creating opportunities for all this data. But you know, crypto is weirdly seems to be like the missing piece that enables this data to be incentivized in a distributed way and actually collectively owned for the first time, as opposed to, you know, just Facebook owning all, you know, photos or whatever people yeah. had, whatever people were concerned about back then that definitely 100% yeah. came true, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're putting in all this time to make all this content, especially now with TikTok and Reels, and yeah. you're not monetizing it, right? Right, right, uh, right? Unless you're like the top of the top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, Google Maps just paid a 400 10 million or 420 million, I don't know the exact number, somewhere in that range, fine to, I think, the DOJ and a bunch of state attorney generals for basically collecting data that they had no right collecting. At this point, they don't care, right? <laughs> like, they're, yeah. the, you know, they're, they're so dominant in mapping. It's like, okay, we're just going to write off that $400 million as a cost of doing business, um, you know, slap on the wrist. I mean, $400 million for your average person sounds a lot. But, you know, if you pull Google Maps out of Google, it's worth like, I don't know, 50 billion, 100 billion, 150 billion, somewhere in that ball range. So it's like, okay, whatever. We don't care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So aside from economics, I, HiveMapper is interesting to me because as this podcast goes, it's related to helium in more than one way. So, you know, you're, you borrowed maybe some of the economics from helium, the tokenomics, yeah. and we're inspired there. And you, you, you know, you didn't just straight borrow it. You have your own innovations on top of it and, and tweaks to it, which I think are quite interesting. But you're also literally integrated with Helium, right? So your dash cams have the Helium LoRa IoT hardware in them. Yeah. And not only is it in there, you are actively using it. So can you talk a little bit about how HiveMapper is using Helium? Yeah. So we use it for location verification purposes. So what's really important for the dash cam is everyone has to trust that the dash cam is actually where it says it's located at. Um, because otherwise, if it starts to you know, generate data, you, know, you can imagine the dash cam, let's say it's, it's much more uh, rewarding to be earning honey tokens, which is our token, uh, in let's say Venice, California, but you happen to be in like remote Kansas uh, you could tinker with the dash cam and then start to pretend like you're actually in Venice, California, right? That would obviously be bad. It would be bad, not just from a honey token reward perspective and trust perspective. It would also be really bad from a customer perspective, right? Like data, all of this, I can't trust the data. So yeah, so what we do basically is, you know, every dash cam is driving along doing its thing. And what it's doing is basically saying is, what are the, all the different hotspots that I've seen? Okay, and then what are all the other dash cams in that area? What hotspots have they seen? Okay, and then we take those two and we say, have you guys basically seen the same hotspots? And so that is a kind of a triangulation that we're doing to use that information from Helium 
to ensure that like, okay, yes, if you're actually driving in Venice, California, there's other people who saw the same hotspots. And so you're definitely in Venice, California. That's really interesting. So you're essentially using the ubiquity of the Helium IoT network as an independent location verification, a check on GPS, which hypothetically could be spoofed if someone were to get access to the hardware. Right. Um, and you're not relying on necessarily Helium's own proof of coverage either. You're not just saying, oh, this hotspot is an X location, uh, according to proof of coverage, according to where it's asserted, we're just gonna assume that's right. You're saying, we wanna see multiple dash cams sending a packet through this hotspot while they're in a relatively similar region right. to associate. Yeah. And what's so interesting to me is that means you're essentially independently verifying the Helium network, right? You're, you are creating a data set about which hotspots are in which locations that comes from your own hardware that you're producing in-house and you know, ostensibly you're a, a trustworthy actor in the ecosystem. Now I've seen publicly um, in content on your YouTube page that you are actually submitting this data to the Helium Foundation to be used for anti-gaming efforts, which I think is like doubly awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're using it, we're, we're sharing this data with the Helium Foundation. I mean, there's some things that we kind of pull out there just to protect the privacy of the of the drivers of the high mapper network, but yeah, they can use it. And then um, the other project within Helium is the mappers project, right? Like basically IoT map coverage. This helps support that project as well. Yeah, the mappers project, it, so essentially uh, is a bunch of self-funded contributors who are just doing this basically as a hobby to go right. around with a GPS enabled device and send packets through the Helium network to say, I sent this packet from location X, it touched these hotspots. Exactly. Um, and these are these are multiple sort of independent ways to verify the network. Exactly. Um, I saw that you tweeted something pretty interesting. It was that there were over 5,000 unique hotspots. What was it per day or per week that are seeing high mapper packets? I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, just like, and that's, I've tweeted also about this, where I think that the prices that Helium charges for the IoT network are like way too low, at least for our use case. Like, I mean, we 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 modeled this out obviously because we're, we foot the bill for this. Um, you know, Hide Mapping uh, foots the bill for this. But anyway, we modeled this out, and we're like, there would have to be I forgot what the number is. You know, tens of millions of devices out there every single day. You know. And only at that point would it like, you know, be a blip on our radar in terms of our internal costs, right? <laughs> so it's right. really, really low. And I think I did another tweet about like, just, I think they have to kind of rethink their pricing a little bit because it's just, I mean, I, I'm definitely negotiating against myself here, but I also care about Helium, right? <laughs> I care about Helium in terms of like, you know, can it become, and it needs to become a sustainable business, right? And I think in order to do that, Part of that is also just think, rethinking the pricing a little bit. And I'm not from that community. I don't want to pretend to be like I'm, I'm like a hard, you know, like that I'm super deep into the community like you are. But it seems uh -huh. to me like pricing should be on the list of things that are reconsidered. No, you're absolutely right. I've had discussions with plenty of people publicly and privately about this. I think there is an overall consensus basically towards what you're saying. The main challenge is you also want to be able to allow super high frequency sensors that are sending data every like three to five seconds to exist on the network. Because if yeah. you just bump the price of data credits 
suddenly those sensors cost hundreds of dollars per month and it no longer makes sense for them to use helium except for in very niche cases where the data is that valuable right yeah so and there are inherent difficulties with the the way that LoRaWAN works technically and the way that it interfaces with the blockchain that make it very hard to do like per device seat billing, which is what you would essentially need to solve for both cases, both yeah. cases, right? You need to have like an upfront cost to add a device to the network yeah. and then maybe a low on, or, or a higher ongoing cost or maybe like a tiered ongoing yeah. cost. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, in my view, it's um, a technical issue as, as much as it is like a one of governance, but not one that can't be solved and not one that people are not focusing on and don't care about. I think that bringing more revenue to the IoT network from the growing amount of use cases that are like showing up the sooner we do it, the better, because you don't want to really shock customers with that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Pricing changes. I mean, look, like in terms of, you know, some of the feedback that I got in terms of the, the tweet that I put out there, which was interesting, was like, look, we should solve this um, problem, the pricing problem. But I think the, the first order problem is just getting more devices to start with, right? Hooked up, yep. get the lower chip in there, make that super simple you know, make the onboarding easy, all that kind of stuff, and then solve the pricing problem. I agree with that assessment in terms of just prioritization. You can still have whatever, a really, you know, 50 million devices that are ultimately hooked up to Helium, you know, that are like, some are doing a lot, some are doing a medium amount, some are doing really low. And if you kind of just look at the revenue generated, it doesn't get that interesting. You, you're starting to see the exponential ramp up where it like that very tiny first inkling of uh, upswing on the S-curve, the long, long S-curve of Helium IoT adoption, where you're seeing like HiveMapper yeah. bring, I think you guys have almost 2,000 devices actively on the network globally, which is very cool. You operate pretty much globally. Um, and other companies are doing the same thing and you're starting to see that. But yeah, it's going to be a challenge, I think. But it's not one that's uh, not overcomable. I think we're just going to have to work at it. Um, all right, I've taken us way deep in the weeds, but you know, let's take it way back. I want to know so much about Hive Mapper <laughs> that I'm so curious. I'm, there are so many parallels that I see between Hive Mapper and Helium, and just in terms of just the journey. Of course, you have your own journey and you have your own stories. One thing I noticed off the bat was that Hive Mapper is a company that was founded in 2015 and adopted the crypto model starting last year. And Helium was founded in 2013 and adopted the crypto model in 2019 after going through many iterations. So yeah. I, I saw this parallel and it yeah. really got my mind spinning. Is like, how, how did this happen? How, what was the starting point that eventually led through six or seven years of iteration to yeah. where we are now? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'll start with this. I'm not like a lot of people who are in the crypto world. I've kind of uh, come to learn are like you know, crypto's first, right? I come to crypto as, or I approach crypto as a very important technology and say to myself, how do I use this technology to accomplish our mission, which is building a global map of the world? Okay, so why is that interesting to me? Why is that mission important? I'll start with, I started to realize how expensive it was to build maps Back when I was at Yahoo Maps, this goes back like really my first job out of school, almost like 2005, 2006 timeframe. And it was at that time when we were, we were still competitive with Google, right? We were competitive with them in search. We were competitive with them in Maps. Um, in Maps, we actually had a big lead on them. In search, it was kind of like neck and neck. Like we had, they had 35% market share. We had 30% market share. It was kind of that kind of stuff. Anyways, um, they then, Google Maps, started to collect their own data. As they started to collect their own data, we did not. We just licensed our data. As they started to collect their own data, it got a lot better, 
like significantly better. And then they start taking market share from us region by region. And we kind of saw this like happening. I was like watching this happen. That was a very frustrating experience for me because like Yahoo management executive team did not want to invest the kind of money that Google was pouring into it. But I started to just realize like, given how expensive it was to build maps, that it kind of lend itself to like one or two companies with just tremendous resources, basically ruling, right? And basically dictating how people navigate the world. So I left Yahoo. I was like, I just loved maps. I just fell in love with them. I got lucky that way, really, in terms of my first job. Like, you know, I don't know, like some people's first job, they kind of hate it and they move on or they just stick with it for the rest of their lives sometimes. But like, I got lucky, very lucky. I still really very thankful that I found something that I just, you know, from a product perspective, from a technology perspective, in terms of like how it, how it plays such an important role in our lives that I was like, okay, I'm going to stick with this, right? And so the first company I started, this company called Gigwalk in 2010, this was just like iPhone Androids. And so we were collecting data with people's iPhones and Androids. Take a picture here. The whole idea was like, it's a gig that you walk to. And, um, you know, you can do it with your phone. And so we had a whole bunch of customers. We had like Procter & Gamble, Bloomberg Financial. We had Bing Maps actually as a customer. So it was a whole great set of customers. There were two problems with that business. One is our economics were really bad. I can go into that more. And then the second thing was it was a very active experience where you take your phone out, look the gig up, and then like do something, right? And so like your expected like earnings was actually quite high, right? And so that was kind of like this thing was like, okay, like if you're going to build a map and build these types of massive data collection systems, the experience has to be very, very passive. It has to kind of be a background thing that you're just doing. Anyways, that company, like it, it, it worked, but it didn't work. Um, and then, yeah, in 2015, started HiveMapper with the goal of how do we build a map, right? It was just like, let's be honest about this. Let's be forward about this. This is what we want to accomplish. And uh, we started with drones and drones, you know, two years in, we're like, this isn't working. I don't I could curse on this, but it was a really shitty time like, at the company. It wasn't working for two primary reasons. The battery technology was not improving. And so that meant was the collection experience was very active, right? You had to like put the drone up there, put it back, you know, pull it back down, switch the battery, like all the commercial drones, even some of the better military drones to this day, had the same fun, fundamental problem, right? Which is like you're, you're talking about like 40 minutes lifespan, maybe 50 minutes. That's not going to cut it. Not even close. That was one big issue. The other big issue was government regulation. So we're like, okay. I mean, we had these contracts that were like helping us, you know, sustain ourselves. So it was like five, six million a year in revenue kind of thing. There was never like explosive growth, but we were we were sustaining ourselves. What we were doing was taking all that revenue and then we plow it back into basically the first version of what you see today, which was dash cam that people drove with. Uh, it wasn't our dash cam. It was a third party dash cam. And then we paid them cash, right? By map tile. The short version of it is like it was working. It scaled, right? It was like really awesome to see just like that it scaled and it scaled beautifully. And we were running in six different cities. And then I saw Helium in terms of their incentive mechanism and crypto. And I was like, oh my God, this makes so much more sense, right? Like, you know, economic alignment, you know, owner, all these things that are really, really important. 
And so then I reached out to Amir. Amir and I started this conversation. I, he, I showed him what we're building. He's like, this is really interesting. And then he showed us to some other people. Long story made short, you know, got introduced to the multi-coin guys. Uh, and then they led a financing. And then that really helped us grow what you see today, which is our own dash cam and you know, all the crypto stuff um, and some, some really great tools on top of it, right? To make that collection experience really easy and really passive um, so, so that we can scale the coverage and do it cost effectively. So that that's kind of the journey, you know. That was uh, took a while, uh, some very painful times for sure, but it's been it's been a fun ride. So, what is it that led you to decide that look, we've got this third party um, hardware that we're mapping with, we're having tons of success, we're gathering lots of great data. Like, what was preventing you from just rolling with that third party hardware and scaling up with like something that already existed versus doing the really, really hard thing of like, yeah. just like helium, original helium hotspot, like making your own hardware. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is, I mean, we were using a good dash cam. It's called the Blackview dash cam, but look, Blackview has its own business model, right? And Blackview. So we want like them to open up a whole bunch of APIs to us and like make the thing like really easy to access and, there's a whole, we had a laundry list of things that we went to talk to them about. And they're like, look, this isn't like super high priority for us, which I get like from their perspective, it probably like in their business model, what they were trying to accomplish, it probably didn't make a lot of sense for them. So I don't blame them in any way. Um, and then we kind of went to other dash jam manufacturers. We asked them for the same thing and they're like, no, not you know, like, yeah, it's interesting, but we're not going to do it. It's not a priority for us unless you like, you know, give us a lot of money. And so that was one. The other thing was I was very concerned about spoofing. Right. Like once you introduce a reward mechanism, uh, you can definitely see why there's a very strong incentive to spoof the network um, and pretend like you're at a different location or, you know, you're doing a lot more activity than you actually are. So I was very concerned about that. And we really want to build that into the hardware. The third thing is that most of these third party dash cams, you know, their definition of uh, GPS accuracy like they don't care if it's like one meter, three meters, five meters. There's no like good business case to like improve the GPS accuracy. And whereas if we're building a map, there's a very strong incentive, right? And so I felt like not having control over those three different pieces, you know, would I would always be inferior, right? From a map perspective, I'd be inferior. From like a people spamming the shit out of like what we were doing, I'd be inferior. And then that connectivity between the dash cam and the app on your phone would always be inferior as well. And so I was like, all right, screw it. Let's go build it, right? Um, to solve those three kind of underlying problems. There's another aspect of this, which is, look, if you introduce, you know, the customer really wants standardized imagery. What they hate is like, you know, you have this dash cam and it has this resolution and this size, all this kind of stuff, Right. What that ultimately meant was we would have to like attach ourselves to like one manufacturer, right? So, so we have like this one thing. Well, they may decide like, screw this model. I don't want to sell you this model anymore. I'm getting this out. Now you're going to have a new standard image, right? Like all of a sudden you're like, mm. you're dealing with, you know, 20 different like image size, resolutions, color balance, all this type of stuff, which is bad from a customer perspective. So let's talk a little bit about what the dash cam is. So it's this piece of hardware. Um, it's about the size of like, if you took maybe like five or, or seven AirPods cases and put them next to each other, maybe that's about how big it is. 
it's pretty lightweight. You mount it on your windshield yeah. in the center of your windshield, either inside or you figure out a way to mount it outside of your vehicle. Um, and it has like a, 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 an ultra wide, basically field of view, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so like, what's, you gotta think about this from the perspective of like, what does a map need, right? Well, a map needs to see the lanes, right? So if you ever pay you know, close attention, you know, the lanes actually have the lane definitions inside of them, right? Hey, right turn only, you know, bus lane, bike lane, you know, left turn only, all that kind of stuff, you know, dotted lines, double, all that crap, right? So that that's one thing it needs to see. That's pretty low. Then you want to also see like the speed signs, right? The stop signs, the yield signs, the turn restriction signs. You want to see the parking restriction signs. You want to see all that kind of stuff. Then you want to, if you go a little bit up, you want to see the traffic lights, Right. Um, so, you know, you want to see the poles around you, like the utility poles, other kinds of light poles, all that kind of stuff. So the, the field of view needs to be able to see that stuff, right? People always ask me like, what's the greatest like position for the dash cam? Like, look, if it sees a little bit of your car hood, it's not a big deal, right? Even if it sees a little bit of your dashboard, like 5% or 6% of your dashboard, like that's not, that's not the end of the world, right? But it has to see those things. If it can't see those things, it's not, it's not a good mapper. Right. And so, yeah, that, that's, I think, a common question that people have that, that I've talked to about HiveMapper who are, who are unfamiliar is like, okay, so it's building Google Street View. And I'm like, well, not really. Google Street View is a car that's driving with this giant thing on the center of it, right? It's a 360 degree camera. It's like multiple feet tall. And it's creating this human centric 360 degrees, like ultra slick user experience for browsing maps. But that is, it seems to me is not what HiveMapper is building. It's quite different. So how, how would you help someone understand what the differences are between Street View and like what type of data that HiveMapper is going for? Yeah. So there, there's some similar, look, Google Street View, the, all that imagery that they collect, in addition to it being used by humans, right, to gain situational awareness, right, like understand what's going on at a given location, all that kind of stuff from a map perspective. Um, they're also using that imagery to then build the map, right? All those things that I talked about uh, in terms of street signs, in terms of lane definitions, in terms of addresses, traffic signs, like yada, yada, they're using all that from the imagery as well, right? So from that perspective, we're similar, right? We are both using imagery to then build the fundamental map of what you see, right? Like, hey, you make a right-hand turn here and I know you need to be in the right-hand lane because I know that that's the only lane you're allowed to make a right from, right? Like all that kind of information. Um, a very simple example, but like one of literally, you know, tens of thousands of these little things that are important. We don't, think that the vast the vast majority of people who use hive mapper will never see the imagery right you may have some like analysts or like some map editors or like some very specific customer groups that use the imagery but in general it's not really being used you know the same way that people use google street view if you want to give an example of a specific company that is consuming this data and it has like high value to them like what is one example of a company that's consuming this type of very specific imagery. Yeah. So if you look at, um, so there's, there's uh, what's referred to as ADAS that is basically short for like assisted driving. So it's not like robo taxis. It's like, okay, we're going to help your car get onto the highway. We're going to help your car get into the right lane and do this autonomously. 
And then we're going to maintain, you know, your speed and your separation from all the other cars around you. And then we're going to get you off the highway, right? Ford has this, I think it's called like Blue Cruise or something like that. And, you know, GM now has it in their higher end cars as well. So it's like, it's, it's kind of like making its way. Underneath the systems, you obviously have a perception system, but it's also driven by a map. Okay. What are the lanes, right? That I need to like move from. Am I allowed to be in this lane? Am I not allowed to be in this lane? Where do I need to get off? What's the speed limit here? Am I going too fast? Am I going too slow here? You know, all of that kind of information is driven by a map. And so, you know, the car is becoming a bigger and bigger consumer of map data. It used to be like, you know, the car would have like your map infotainment system there, or it didn't, and you just have like, you know, on your phone, Google Maps or Waze or whatever, you, or Apple Maps or something like that. Now the car itself is integrating data into it. Like in the EU, all new cars coming off the manufacturing line have to know the speed limits. Like, think about that, because then they want to govern you effectively and say, okay, well, you're going too fast. We're going to like automatically slow you down kind of stuff, which I think is- That's a regulation that that's a regulation actually, the, actually yeah. exists and is uh, yeah, passed. It, it starts 2024. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like that's, that's one example. Um, you know, if you go to other examples, like in the mobility and logistics space, you know, they want to know, okay, I, I don't want to go to the front door. Google Maps tells me to go to the front door of this like restaurant or this like business or this whatever, this office building. If I'm doing deliveries, that's not where I go. You know, <laughs> There's like a specific location you go. And the question is, how do you get there? Right. So the, uh, the entrance and the exit from those is like, you know, there's not a lot of good data out there, right? And that's, they're constantly changing, right? Then there's like insurance companies are saying like, okay, hey, we want to do property insurance on this location. What does it look like? Is the house trashed from the exterior perspective, obviously, not from the interior perspective, right. you, know? <laughs> um, you know? What's going on here? What kind of block is this, right? So they need really relevant and fresh information in order to drive these decisions. So those are some like just a couple of examples offhand in terms of like how this data gets used. What we haven't yet seen is that there's, let me actually take a step back. A lot of people come to me and say, hey, Ariel, this is crazy. Like you got to build like the entire world's map and only then can you be able to monetize it. That's not true. So there's like different levels, right? So there's probably like in a given region, let's just take LA for an example, there's about 100,000 road kilometers. If you get 50% of that, that's kind of like anything below 50%, it's basically, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money if you make any money at all, right? Let's just be honest. So there's like a 50% threshold where you'll get some customers looking for additional data sources, looking to augment their database, right? Looking to fill in gaps if you're fresher, if you're more cost effective. So you'll make a little bit of money, but not a ton because like those customers are going to be like a little bit more, they're, they're definitely willing to take more risk, but it's not like you're dealing with like the big Fortune 500 cust customers that can spend like five or $10 million on you. Uh, and then the next range is about 75%, right? And it's 75%, then you get the bigger customers who can lean in a little bit more aggressively, but they need a lot of regions, right? They're, they're like LA is just not enough for them, right? They would need like 30, 40 regions, right? To, to make a, uh, you know, to make a bet on use. And then a hundred percent coverage, then you're really talking, right? Cause then you can just do more use cases. You own the map. You can start to like actually like build mapping features, you know, drive turn by turn directions, like a lot of other stuff. So, 
you ultimately got to get above 99% coverage, right? Like if this thing is going to be worth like a lot one day, it has to get to those levels and it has to maintain those levels as well, right? It has to be constantly refreshing as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the alpha phase that you did? Was it Manila? There was a city that you, you reached, what was it? 90 plus percent coverage with how many drivers? It's a couple hundred and Manila is small. So Manila is just very dense, right? Versus LA is kind of very spread out. Um, so yeah, Manila is like about 10,000 road kilometers. There's a couple hundred drivers there. They were very, very passionate about HiveMap, which was really cool to see. We learned a lot from them just as like human beings as well as what they were doing from the map. Yeah, I think we didn't quite reach 90. I think we reached, yeah, like 90, 95% if I recall correctly. But the, the more interesting aspect of that is like, I forgot the exact number, but it was a high refresh rate. I think it was like 60% or something like that. I had to go back and look at this carefully. But, you know, every month that basically meant is like the entire, almost the entire region, 65, 70% of it was getting refreshed every single month. Like that's unheard of, right? And that was really eye-opening for us and really cool to see. Um, People don't appreciate like how much, especially for these big dense cities, like how much stuff changes like day to day. Mm -hmm. What's an example of something that would change like, on, on a road that's frequently traveled that would be valuable to some sort of customer? I mean, construction is the big one, right? Construction changes, you know, the path, the traffic patterns, you know, the accident rates, um, you know, the traffic time, like how long you're stuck in traffic, you know, just going from like, if you have a four lane highway or a three lane highway, if you start with like one lane closed and then it's like two and something else happens, like that can like dramatically change. Then you're also dealing like anything that, I mean, if you just look on ways of like all the different types of reports that they have, like they have road debris, they have police activity, right? They have events and venues, like all those things change how people move around the city and what is the most efficient, effective way to go do that. And think about this, like if you're, you know, in logistics doing delivery on that truck, you have, let's say at a day, you have $100,000 worth of revenue. Okay. You have 60 stops, let's say. If it takes you 10 hours to do that, right, that's a lot different than if it takes you six hours, right? You know, how much you're paying your driver, gas, wear and tear on your machine, how much revenue you can recognize. You know, if you can do that in six hours versus eight hours or nine hours, you can then take, you know, put more stuff onto your truck potentially. Um, So you got to think about this in terms of a lot of these delivery and logistics folks. I mean, the same thing with Uber, right? Like, how do I get into my location, pick up the person very efficiently, boom, they're there, they know, I don't have to talk to them, whatever. And then they're in my car and then I'm moving, you know, moving them to their destination, drop them off, pick somebody else up, right? If you look at like, where is the high friction in that? It's almost always in the pickup location. Where am I? Are you there? I don't see you, you know? (laughs) Yeah. All those like little things. Well, like now you're, you know, delivering stuff to all these different locations. It's like that times 20. Okay, so you're saying there's like an incremental improvement with, say, knowing that there's a construction zone that you should route around before five of your drivers hit it and you're, it's reported on your internal system or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You could just yeah. know it. It, it. it gets even more granular than that is like somebody's doing deliveries, let's say, to like a Walmart or a Target, right? And they have like one of these big semi trucks or a bigger truck. And they know that like, hey, if there's like too much traffic in, in and around the parking lot, right? Or one of those delivery bays is like occupied, like mm. my guy's just going to be like, you know, trying to figure out how to go around this traffic with this big ass truck. And then he's going to ultimately get to his location. He's going to have to wait for the bay to open up. 
And so like, they're like, hey, do you have information about what's happening specifically at this target? How many cars are around there? You know, what's the weight? Like, is the bay occupied? Like, that's kind of the level of granularity that they want. Oh, my God. That's intense. I, I, I Yeah, I wanted, like, this is so interesting to me um, because it's, like, very clear what the unique selling proposition of iMapper is to me. And, like, I'd love for you to explain it in your own words. But from what I, from what I see, it's, like, you're going to be able to get this data much more frequently than Google could ever get, right? So if someone's asking the question like, all right, yeah, HiveMapper is going to go map the world, but Google already has that. So how are you ever going to yeah. overcome that, right? Yeah. What is it about HiveMapper? Well, I think there's there, there's speed aspect of it, right? Which is really, really valuable. And I'll just touch on one other additional use case. That's It's not right here in front of us, but it's right around the corner, uh, augmented mm-hmm. reality. So augmented reality, the idea is you know, you'll have a pair of glasses or most glasses will have the ability to augment objects into the, your physical world, right? So if you think about that, it's very useful for directions, right? Like, hey, where should I go to pick up my Uber, right? Like imagine if you had glasses and it was just kind of showing you the route, right, mm-hmm. as an example. Um, or from a storytelling perspective, you know, it was trying to tell you a story and it took like a lizard or some kind of silly, fun character object and it draped it around a fire hydrant or it draped it around <laughs> uh, a bus stop. If that fire hydrant isn't there anymore or that bus stop is no longer there, whatever the underlying physical object is, then it kind of loses its punch, right? The story falls apart mm. because it's not, it's, it's not grabbing, you know, whatever character lizard thing is that you have isn't actually grabbing onto anything. And so AR will also require just incredibly, you know, fresh maps in addition to some of the other use cases that I talked about. But I think the other thing that a lot of people miss, and I remember talking to this guy who works at a logistics company in Toronto, and he's like, you know what the mistake is that you, you Americans make? And I was like, oh, shit. Um, and he's like, <laughs> you guys think that the maps that you have in San Francisco or New York are like the maps that we have in Toronto. And I was kind of blown away by that. I was like, of course I knew that like maps – you know, if you go to South America, you go to Southeast Asia, or you go to Africa, you go to many of the developing markets in this world, there's a steep, steep drop off in terms of map quality and map coverage, even for Google Maps, right? Um, but I didn't fully appreciate, you know, Toronto. Uh, and so he opens up his application. He's like a logistics guy, right? And, you know, most people think, oh, yeah, he just uses one sort, data source. No, no, no. He literally had like five buttons, you know, like this is where you go for Google Maps. This is where he goes for another map thing. And this goes for another map thing. He's like, I, I use five. And it's like, you can't oh, my God. Them. So he's stitching the data manually. Yeah. Like he's when he says stitch, you know, when you say stitching, that's probably a little bit generous in terms of what he's doing. <laughs> fire and fire and, and pray. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm check this system. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Maybe I'll like go look, you know, something here on my order list or like talk to my guy. And so, yeah, there was five different buttons for all the different data sources used. And this is in Toronto, right? Oh, my God. Um, So I think, like, people, you know, underappreciate just, like, that how steep that drop-off is in map quality once you go beyond certain cities in the EU, like a London or a Paris, and then certain cities in the United States. And this is, if you think about it, 
This reality is just purely logical. Like, how is this map built? It's built by Google. They're sending these Street View cars out, expensive cars with drivers. They have to cover every freaking road in the world, which is insanely time consuming and expensive. And once you do it, you probably never want to go back unless the economic activity in that region is so high that, and there's a specific maybe customer demand for that region. Like, why would you ever go back? And if there's only one company doing it, I mean, this is just insane. This is an insane way to build Street View, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I, when I was in when I was in Yahoo, I was making decisions based upon how much money we wanted to spend on data collection, data processing, data storage, you know, literally region by region, you know, metro area by metro area relative to what the monetization rates were in that region, okay? There, there's, I mean, it was like me and three or four other people kind of doing this exercise. Google probably has like 20 people doing this, but that's what, that's effectively what they're doing, right? And so at a certain point, they, the line is, gets drawn somewhere, right? And, you know, the beautiful thing about HiveMapper and permissionless and crypto is like, look, it's not me drawing the line, right? Like if you want to go map your region and you want to like go show that like there's real monetization here, like all the tools are at your disposal to go do that, right? Like you can go get more customers and then that'll drive more map consumption rewards and then all the people in that region will then earn more. So like all the tools and the reward mechanisms are there for you to go and build up your map in that region. Yeah, and we can definitely talk a little bit about the reward mechanisms later, but one thing I really like that you guys elegantly copied from Helium is in Helium, we have this kind of like built-in referral system with proof of coverage where if there's already one hotspot in a region, that's actually incentive to go deploy another one there because of the way that hex scaling works, right? If you can talk to that other hotspot, mutually you will benefit. And if there's a third one, all the other, the previous two will benefit even more. Yeah. You've kind of replicated this by set, you have like 500 defined regions right now, yeah. about 500. And you've just said within each region, if there is one driver, that driver is going to boost the max earnings for that whole region. And if there's another, it's going to boost even more. And, you know, 50 yeah. drivers will get it to like, you know, 30% of the max and like two or 300 drivers will get it to 100%. So yeah. Uh, yeah. it really allows the people creating the map to own the creation process and incentivize each other to come do it. And I, yeah. I think that's really cool. Yeah. It, it, and there's a really important reason as to why we do it, right? It wasn't just like, a, a, there's no trick here, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, we want to get incentivized and get more dash cams out into the world. Like, if, if that's like kind of like the very cynical view of it. But from, oh, the, oh, you mean the view of like, you're just trying to sell hardware? Yeah, we're trying to sell hardware. Like, people are like, oh, you just want to sell hardware? Like, you know, I could do this entire region by myself. Just give me this region. I was like, it's not just about doing it once. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I've definitely heard of people like they say, I, uh, and actually, I know this for a fact. All of San Francisco, if you want to map it really, really well, it takes about one person two weeks to do, right? Oh, wow. Um, in a car. In a, yeah. in a car. Yeah, in a car. Yeah. Um, it takes about two weeks to, to go do. There's, it, I mean, San Francisco itself is fairly small, right? It's 50 square kilometers. And so, uh, but the point is, is that you want resilience in there and you will need freshness in there. What do I mean by resilience? Resilience means is like if there's two people mapping and one goes away, your coverage or your ability to refresh that map just falls by 50%. Not a good situation, right? The other thing is, is that you want actually like in order to get the kinds of freshness that we're talking about, like we talked about in Manila, it can't just be done with one person. It can't be even done with 10 people, Right. Um, and so you do need numbers, right, to maintain that freshness and, fresh and cadence. 
And the third element is like if you want to get the live stuff, the really valuable stuff like constructions and road debris and police activities and accidents and all that kind of stuff, then you need more numbers, right? And that's a lot of high value stuff because that impacts people's, wait, should I go this way? Should I go that way, right? Should I send my fleet to this destination, to this delivery? Should I send them to that location? All that kind of stuff. One thing I've found really fascinating about your alpha test in Manila is you guys found that essentially if you give these dash cams to rideshare drivers that are already covering a lot of ground, there's almost like a natural organic way that most roads just get covered. Yeah. You don't have to direct people to go, hey, look, go over here. Like this, this isn't covered yet. Yeah. It just organically happens. That is fascinating to me. Yeah, no, I mean, the Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, those type of drivers, or even FedEx drivers and those kind of people, they're great, right? Because they just see so many different parts of the city on a daily basis. Um, so that's fantastic. Like I always tell people like, look, if you drive like a bus, you know, like you just do the same route every single day, it's probably like not very useful for you, quite frankly. Um, and you shouldn't do it. Uh, but yeah, if you if you go to like different types of locations throughout the week, this is really great for you, right? There's some people who've come in and like they're like, I don't drive, you know, I drive kind of the same patterns, but they want to, you know, it's fun. They're they're enjoying themselves, they're involving themselves in a crypto project. And so what's quite kind of cool now is like they say, oh, I actually find different paths. I got to go to the gym, I go to the grocery store, I got to go to the airport. They find different paths, and they're like, it's kind of cool to discover new parts of your city, right? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of like a nice unintended consequence of um, of like just you know encouraging people to go to different places. The, not the hardest, but like I mean, there's kind of two hard parts of a city. By like an airport, there's like these warehouse delivery locations and food delivery locations. Like there's only like five or six different types of vehicles that really ever need to go there that ever do go there. So that's like one. And the other thing, which are the bane of my existence, are dead end roads in residential neighborhoods. <laughs> so those are the, those are the two. But yes, like I mean, the reward mechanism also tries to move tokens organically, right, or move rewards. So it says like, look, I don't know, uh, Broadway in Manhattan. Well, that's going to get covered, you know. And so like it, we're going to move it to like other parts of the of, of New York in this case where there isn't a lot of coverage where we want to encourage coverage where we would love to have coverage. Yeah, I, I noticed that your rewards mechanism, mechanism makes it so that if any given section of road hasn't been covered in the last seven days, that's like full reward for that segment yeah. of road. Yeah. Whereas if it has been covered in the last, well, if it's been covered in the last 24 hours, I believe it's zero, right? Yeah. Uh, and if it's been covered in the last day, it's like five or 10%. So it's like an exponential curve between like, this was covered really recently and this was not covered in the last seven days at least. Yeah couple interesting things about it number one you set the the value of this coverage as like we want to refresh this whole thing every seven days yeah like this is this is what this is what you're incentivizing and also as you said it will organically shift towards the places that are already like well trodden like the main like market street in san francisco is essentially going to go to zero yeah and that will naturally push the uh, attainable rewards in that city out to the less traveled streets, which is exactly. super fascinating yeah. on its own. I mean, look, I, a lot of people come to me and say, I get this like this kind of message in Discord and other places like at least once a week, maybe sometimes more than that. They're like, you know, look, Aria, last week I made 500, I drove 500 miles and I made 500, you know, where a thousand tokens, whatever it is, right? The, the numbers don't mean anything. 
And then this week I drove 500 miles, but I only earned 200 tokens. Your system is total crap. And I'm like, I think a lot of these people have been trained, unfortunately, by other projects to basically, like, no matter what value or utility they created in that day or that week, they just get X number of tokens. And I think that's atrocious. Like, I almost think that if you find yourself in a situation where like you're experiencing that, like your spidery senses should go off triggering is like, there's something wrong in this system because you're not actually creating value. Um, and so yeah. then you have to explain to people like, look, like, okay, you may have all those things that we just talked about. Like, hey, you may have been driving on roads that hadn't been refreshed in a while. You may have been driving on different kinds of roads, right? That are like harder to get and therefore earn more. Like there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not just like, hey, I drove 500 kilometers. I earn X, you know, my, X amount of honey tokens. And so therefore I should earn that exact same amount the next week, right? And so that's been like a little bit of a... Um, a surprise to me uh, that like people expect it to be like, I was like, it would be the stupidest map in the world if it was based on like, Hey, you drive, you know, for every kilometer you drive, you are assured this much. Like, what would you do? Like you were just driving circles. Yeah. You'd put it on a bus, right. And, and you'd drive the same bus route every day, create no value. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, I think in retrospect, that may have been a zero interest rate phenomenon, but <laughs> And I think I like some people were like so offended by it. Like I was like pissing on some other projects. I was like, but like, what value are you creating? Ask yourself, like, what value are you creating in the world? Because uh, if you're not creating any, you probably shouldn't earn anything. Well, I th- and that's what really sort of attracted me to Hive Mapper when I started to really holistically understand the model is that. You know, I don't want to be like cliche, but it's it's like a it's almost like a recession-proof business, right? Um, the amount of value and the amount of exponential add-ons you create in this business are insane. So, first of all, you're well, I'll let you deliver what is probably one of your favorite and most repeated messages ever, which is: Should you buy a dash cam just to go drive for Hive Mapper? You should not do that. Bad idea. <laughs> You'll be sorely disappointed. It'll be the worst thing in the world. You'll be yelling and screaming, so don't do it. And don't quit your yeah. job and don't like, yeah, don't do any of that type of stuff. So what's so remarkable is like you, you are encouraging the, the installation of these dash cams in vehicles that are already traversing a lot of VMTs, right? Vehicle miles traveled. And so that is remarkably efficient. Like you literally just add this thing onto a car that's already doing something. This person who is driving Uber or part of a fleet or whatever, they're getting a little bit of additional revenue to make their job a little less tight on the expenses or whatever. You're not creating any additional like uh, environmental concerns or waste or anything. Like you are just adding this one little thing to create a ton of value in existing driving. That's fascinating. It's kind of because like, I mean, I, I like... I thought that was obvious what you just said, uh, but some analysts nope. wrote, wrote some. An, this is not a joke. Like some analysts like wrote up a report and said, Hive Mapper is really bad because and really capital intensive. And I was like, oh, really? And I was like, <laughs> you have to go out and buy a car. Like that's like twenty five thousand dollars. You have to like drive around. That you know, gas is very expensive, and then it's really bad for the environment because you're putting extra cars on the road. I was like. I think there was a billion, I don't know, there's more than a billion cars in the road, but there's like billions of cars already on the road. Yeah. Why would we ever, ever encourage any of those things that you just said? And they're like, well, that's what, 
you would need to do. So you have to start from that oh, perspective. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> That's like, this is like an Airbnb moment where it's like, Oh, we need like more short-term rentals. Like there's so much happening in the world. Short-term rentals are so expensive. It's like, well, why don't you just let people like stay in your house? Like, what are you crazy? They're going to wreck the place. They're going to, you know, whatever. It's a similar, it's a similar vibe to me of that, that type of revelation. But what's so cool is like the efficiency of this system is, is astronomical. Not only are you going to be able to beat Google maps on upfront costs, right? You, yeah, you said yeah. the car is half a million dollars. The current high mapper dash cam is 500. So math five <laughs> you can get a thousand dash cams out there for the cost of one of these cars not to mention the ongoing yeah, maintenance yeah. or whatever yeah um and not only that like you are getting a ridiculously fresher map i mean you're yeah. for for most traveled streets you're getting updates every day yeah. market street in san francisco will have new map data every single day oh absolutely which yeah. google map map like, like a year ago probably every couple hours but um every couple hours the I mean, the other thing is, is that there's already an existing market for dash for dash cams, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of goes back to the early point of was like, why do we build a dash cam? And like, you know, I've talked to Amir uh, at Helium about this many times. And so we're a little bit different in the sense of, um, you know, they very quickly, they built their original hotspot, right? And then they worked with hardware partners to go build all the other hotspots, right? So like Bobcat built one, Rack, and all these other great hardware partners built them. You know, that is definitely like in our strategy book, but what we will pace ourselves a little bit differently, right? Why? Because the dash cam is, A, there's an existing market for them, right? There's an existing market for them. That means is like, you got to be as good as them, right? In other words, it has to be a great dash cam and it has to also be a great mapper. If it's just a great dash cam and not a good mapper, then you're not building a map, right? And vice versa, that's also bad, right? Because then people can't say to themselves, oh, I can use this as a dash cam as well, right? I think that's very important in terms of, okay, what? how am I thinking about this as a buyer? If I'm thinking, of, if I'm an Uber driver, Lyft driver, I can. this can become my dash cam and provide me ongoing utility. That's very important. Anyways, long way of saying is that from a hardware perspective, I think the bar on Hive Mapper is a little bit higher than Helium. With Helium, you know, the hotspots at least, it doesn't matter what the thing looks like. You put it in the corner of your room, you never look at it again, right? When you get into your car, you see that dash cam every single day. So you, you build this like different relationship with the device. And so that's what kind of pushed us to think through. It's like, we're going to like, you know, make sure that the maybe the first and the second and the third device are like really awesome, you know, before we kind of open it up to everybody. We ultimately want to open it up to everybody because there's like a lot of variation in different dash cams, different markets, you know, different price points, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you're going to keep, I'm assuming, some level of standardization and like what type of images produced. Yes. So whatever ML algorithms are at, eventually processing this data yeah. is going to be. So I want to talk a little bit about your growth because you guys have got what, like about 2,000 dash cams out there right now. You've produced a few thousand. You're shipping them out actively. Um, your growth is insane. The amount of unique map kilometers you've created as of this recording is like 850,000. There are about 60 million mappable kilometers of road in the world, as per my own research. So you've mapped over 1% of all the roads in the world already. Yeah. In like, you launched in November, so that's like in a few months. Yeah. And it's on an exponential trend for the unique, I mean, you mapped like, 40,000 unique kilometers in a day in the last yeah. 
Yeah. Like yesterday. That's yeah. insane. A couple of things. One is we definitely seen that a lot of the people who are installing these are Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, truckers, you know, delivery folks. They just naturally put on more miles than like you and I probably do in a given week or a given day. So like we've definitely seen that, which is which is great, right? It also creates all those diversity things for us. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, and like I think we have to do a better job of explaining this from a map coverage perspective. Yes, map coverage is important. But freshness is also really, really critical. We have to come up with some other term than just coverage, right? It's really about how do you build freshness and then how do you also like ensure that you're seeing a lot of live issues and events that are happening naturally throughout the day, right? Like to me, that's like the place where it's like you take LA, if you have, you know, 5,000, 7,000 dash cams, obviously you're, you're going to hit hundred percent coverage, right? But are you also getting great freshness on a weekly, monthly basis? And are you also seeing all the issues that are happening or like the really important ones, right? That affect how that city is moving and flowing or not flowing. Um, and so to me, that's the, you know, the, the really monetizable, interesting place to get to. And that's what I always remember and think about, you know, day in, day out. How do we get there, right? How are we moving right, so end state? Right. So, yeah. And that plays into what I was talking about earlier, which is the economics of the business and the sustainability of the business. You are not just selling the like if you need kilometers, are the only things that mattered, it's like we're going to build the map once and then hopefully we'll get a bunch of new people to come consume what we built. Yeah. With freshness, you have a whole new dimension, which is time. Yeah. You're going to have customers who are coming back again and again and again and again, because by definition, a customer who's interested in this map data and interested in freshness has a perpetual business where that matters. So when you get a customer and you have high coverage and high freshness, like that is creating exponential value because each new, each new customer is consuming this data is not just a customer once. They want it again and again and again yeah. and again. And that is so interesting. I mean, if you just take like a delivery company, right, and they're doing like constantly like routing for any given package that gets delivered to like an address, um, they're probably like hitting that turn by turn, like, you know, internal logistics, like where does the truck go? Where does it not go? 30, 40, 50 times for that one delivery, right? That's one use case, you know, one package hitting that API, like just constantly, like trying to figure out like, hey, should I reroute? Should I not do that route? Like all that kind of stuff, right? And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, look, if you go down the list of like what products get used by billions of people every single day, Maps is one of them. There's probably only a couple others like text messaging, search, you know, YouTube videos, social media type stuff. Um, that's it, right? Uh, maybe your browser, <laughs> your phone. I don't know there's like five or six of them, right? There's not that many, but Maps happens to be one of those. Right. Yeah, I'm just thinking through like, users on this thing, they're all coming for something different, which is also very interesting. And they're coming because they save cost in their own business by utilizing this fresher map, right? Like the, in the package delivery scenario, it's insanely expensive to deliver packages when you think about the wear and tear, the fuel, the time, like everything. Yeah. There's so much cost. So you, you just raise a really interesting point, I think, especially for your audience that happens to like really understand crypto and decentralized networks. I think they'll appreciate this, which is you, you made a really important observation is like customers are using maps for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different use cases, which is 100% right. 
And there's a lot of, so that's good and bad, right? Good in the sense of like, hey, your local government, you know, city, county, whatever, uses a lot of maps and a lot of geospatial information, right? Tesla uses maps in terms of their supply chains, right? Like forget about like what you see in the car and like all the car, like they use maps to understand their supply chains, the movement of different, you know, uh, parts, where they're at, what they're impacted by, right? Because if you're missing one part, boom, the entire supply chain basically falls apart, right? So there's like, you know, fisheries, you, uh, you know, use it like wildfire uses maps, right? Just like the, the list goes on and on and on, okay? And so you think about HiveMapper, there's two entities like Helium, right? You Helium has Nova Labs and then it has the Helium Foundation. So people should think about there's HiveMapper Inc. today, the business that launched the mapping network, right? Which is run by the HiveMapper Foundation. HiveMapper Inc. is going to say, okay, which use cases do we want to focus on? And it's going to be mostly around navigation and logistics. But other people can say, hey, I want to focus and build, building on top of the HiveMapper network, I understand the insurance business really well, right? I understand local governments really well. I'm going to go build utilizing the mapping network's data, a whole other software application, tools, whatever, and go sell them into local government agencies, right? And they should go do that, right? Like, that's awesome. That really means that the mapping network itself can then serve thousands of use cases ultimately, right? Not just navigation and logistics. Um, I think that will obviously take some time for it to like fully play out, but you know, we hope it gets to that point because that just drives more value into the underlying data that contributors are helping build. Yeah. And as you're saying this, a lot of listeners are probably thinking like, why is Armand so excited about like HiveMapper Inc. making money uh, off this map? So maybe I should clarify, like HiveMapper has a very similar economic model to Helium. In Helium, there's data credits and HiveMapper, there's map credits. You must buy and burn honey tokens in order to consume the map credits. So the, the value is driven directly into the token just with Helium and its various tokens. So just want to clear that up. Yep. 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 There's already developers building tools on top of the data. Right? Mm -hmm. So people are coming and saying, like, oh, I want a different way to visualize this data, right? Um, and so, great, like, go build that, right? Like, HiveMapper's not going to corner the market in terms of, like, how do we visualize this data? So somebody already built a really cool to go do that, a, a great user experience. That is burning honey tokens, right? That's not something that we built. That's just, like, some interested, you know, person went, I get these kind of emails all the time, like, I want to go build XYZ, right? So as the map gains more coverage and more freshness and all that kind of stuff, you'll see a lot more of that. Yeah, and I've, I found myself playing with one of these tools that a community member built not like just a few days ago that was basically like a street view maps viewer yeah. where you can look at the HiveMapper map image API and sort of uh, go forward just like you can in Google Street View and look at the image. I clicked on it. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I look up the clock. It's like an hour later and I've just been <laughs> looking through images, fresh images of my favorite spots in San Francisco and like the Sunset District and just like, you know, have, being nostalgic for, you know, I haven't been to California in a year, like I want to go back. And I'm just looking through this. I'm like, oh, man, like, first of all, that's amazing that I could just have that experience of looking at a fresh map of San Francisco. I didn't realize it was it was something I wanted until I had it. Second of all, I, I was thinking like, man, there, there could definitely be some sort of viral component here just on the consumer aspect of this. This is what's so crazy about these like new projects and ideas like Helium and HiveMapper that are, are so out of the box. You never know what's going to be built on top of it, yeah. right? It's really open. Uh, so I'm like imagining like in, in six months, there's so much data out there. There's like a subreddit just that's dedicated to like 
people going on on this hive map reviewer and just finding like weird shit that's yeah, happening yeah. Uh, in real time and people would i bet pay even to you to go do that just for fun just so they could go get the upvotes yeah 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 and you know yeah, yeah. that's just like one of a thousand use cases i mean i do I, in terms of paying right obviously like you know, nobody pays for Google Maps from a consumer perspective, right? If you open up the Google right. Maps on your iPhone or Android, I mean, you're paying for it by like giving them all your location data and privacy away, but like you're not, and you're clicking yep. on ads and all that kind of stuff. So you are paying that ultimately, but there's no upfront charge. And same thing for Waze. But I have thought two things in terms of maps and consumer navigation experiences. One is I think there's a subset of people who actually do care about their privacy. Like I realize not all consumers care about their privacy, but I think that. Some people do care about their privacy more and more. So I do wonder, like, okay, is there an opportunity to build a consumer navigation experience based on the data that HiveMapper is providing that is really sensitive to people's privacy? And, like, that's part of the contract, right? That's part of the brand. That's part one. Part two is, you know, these uh, – we're going to – about to launch this feature called Buzz where you hit a button – um, the if you see an accident or construction or road debris. So it's kind of like Waze-style reports, but you see the actual underlying imagery, right? And so there's a couple things there. There You don't have to trust somebody else's analysis of the situation, right? With Waze, it's like, hey, there's an accident. Well, it's a little fender bender, like not a big deal, you know, like it's going to get cleared off in five minutes versus like there's a three-car accident. The imagery tells you, right? The imagery is not lying, um, you're not taking somebody else's word for it or analysis of the situation. And so the point is, is that I do wonder if like, are, would people be willing to pay for that? Right? Like mm. you're in, the moment, in the moment, like what's the first thing that people do when there's like, they're backed up is they're trying to like look out the side of their car and see like yeah. what's going on. And so I do wonder is like, okay, there's like this natural human curiosity to see what's going on in front of me. If you have the image, would people pay whatever, three bucks a month, four bucks a month to go do that. I'm not saying we're going to do that, but I think it's an interesting thought exercise. There's so many things like this you could imagine. And, uh, while we're focused on costs, I also want to talk about like Google Maps. They are like the API provider for mapping data as far as, am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, they're dominant. Yeah, like, They're dominant, yeah, like basically a monopoly. Yeah. And is that what the, that $400 million lawsuit is about? or? <laughs> no, the, the, the $400 million lawsuit has to do with, there's another lawsuit in terms of that, that the DOJ just launched. We can talk about that in a moment. But no, the lawsuit that they settled for $400 million was around collecting information that was private, you know, that was private uh, sensitive, that they didn't really have rights to collect, all that kind of stuff. So it had to do, I think, with Wi-Fi and a bunch of other stuff. There's a separate DOJ. This is just kind of, room, you know, Wall Street Journal reported that um, there's like basically anti-competitive practices relative to Google Maps APIs. So for example, if you want to use somebody else's map tiles, right, like from whatever, there's like a couple of other providers out there, and then you, but you want to use the Google map search capabilities called geocoder, um, you're not allowed to mix them. So Google will mm. like see if you're mixing them and come down and basically be like, you have to remove that. If you want to use our geocoder, you have to use our map tiles as well. You're not allowed to mix and match. Is that because these map consumers are going out and saving costs by mixing and matching? And what's um, the deal there's there? a lot of reasons for it. I think cost is definitely a big driver, right? Like Google map API prices have increased by about 1800% since 2018. Um, so a lot. So yes, cost is definitely a big part. They have one, they definitely have a very good geocoder. 
So like you could say, look, like I'll use a geocoder and I'll pay the price for that. But like the map tiles, I can go get those somewhere else. They're a lot more cost effective. Um, or I can design them a little bit more to my look and feel in my brand with other tools like Mapbox. So you would mm-hmm. say, okay, I'll go use those from Mapbox and then combine it. But Google will come after you. I mean, that just seems like brazenly anti-competitive. Oh yeah, they, I mean, like this goes back like when I was working on an unrelated project um, for a brief period of time. Like they came after me. <laughs> like, oh I was gosh. like, I was like tiny. It was like it was kind of like a joke. I was like. I had like maybe like a hundred users a day or something like that. And they were like, no, you can't do this. I was like, this is what you're doing with your freaking time. So in terms of getting people who are currently consuming Google Maps API, which is basically everyone, right? Google Maps or Mapbox and Mapbox isn't as complete in a lot of ways. And I know this from experience in terms of getting people who are currently consuming those APIs to switch to consuming high mapper data, you've already mentioned one aspect of it, which is you need to have high coverage, like over 99% and high freshness in given regions in order to make it basically interesting for someone to consume like the majority of what they're looking for through HiveMapper's API. But we didn't really talk about cost. I mean, what type of cost advantage, you just said that the prices went up by 1800% since 2018. I mean, what happened in the last four years that made the map all that more valuable? I, someone please tell me if, if I don't know what I'm talking about, but it seems like it'd be pretty easy to beat that. Yeah, Whatever I mean, the cost, we will is. definitely be. I mean, today our our map image API. If you just kind of look at like you know, they they have a map image API as well. You know, just kind of static image. You know, versus ours. Ours is like definitely like you know, ten times more cost effective than theirs. That's for sure. But I think from a customer perspective, I think what cost is not the initial decision maker, right? I want to be very clear about this. And I think this is where people get it wrong: is that nobody like Yelp to this day. Yelp hates Google, right? I mean, like they, they they don't treat them very well in terms of like just siphoning off their users and SEO stuff. So like, there's no love loss between Yelp and Google. Um, but yet, Yelp uses Google, and the question is why, right? Because they view it as the best customer experience, right? And that's mm-hmm. what they want to provide, right? We're integrating, so you have to provide a really great, you know, map customer experience, right? That's where it starts. And this is where I think like people like OpenStreetMap and other things kind of get it wrong. It's like, look, cost basically makes it so that it's easier to move customers over to you, right? But if you're not, you know, if you don't have the coverage and you don't have the freshness and you don't have the quality, they're not going to move. It doesn't matter how cheap you are. What the other thing that cost does is it makes, you know, we hear this a lot. I'm not going to name names, but like, you know, big companies, big brands that we all know, you go talk to the people who work on maps and they're like, look... We want to use Google Maps APIs for this use case and this use case and this use case and this use case. It's just too expensive. Mm -hmm. And so they are dramatically limiting basically innovation um, because it's just too expensive. And so that's the other thing is like it just opens up a lot more experimentation, a lot more innovation, a lot more use of maps if you can help drive the cost down. So is that what you do? You see these customers who are building something innovative, but they don't necessarily have a viable way to make it exist if you know they're paying google maps you see these types of customers coming and saying like you know hey when you have x percentage coverage in these certain regions like we're we're all in yeah i mean the biggest thing i hear from customers right now is like look um coverage 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 right like i mean i just take that insurance company 
they want to hit us because they want to look at all the different you know buildings to see like hey like is this property well you know kept is it like are the windows broken you know like all that type of stuff right in terms of insuring the underlying property of that house right they say to themselves look i cover their us based insurance company they're like okay how much coverage do you have of the top nfl cities right and so like they you know they have obviously other sources that they can hit as well including you know google maps but two things. One is they got to feel like, okay, if I hit this API, I'm going to come back with something 50% of the time or 60% of the time, 70%. If I'm only coming back with like 10% of the time, 20% of the time, it's not worth the effort, right? In terms of mm-hmm. like integrating to the workflow and all that type of stuff. So coverage is really, really important. Um, the other kind of key distinction I forgot is like, look, Google Maps does not allow you, if you use their Google Street View or the Map Image API or satellite or whatever it is, you're not allowed to build derivative products. Mm. Like big no no. Like you can't resell the data essentially. Yeah, exactly. You cannot say, oh, I'm gonna use your imagery now, and then I'm gonna like pull out, I don't know, if you're a commercial real estate company, you're gonna pull out commercial real estate signs and start to understand who has listings for this office building for this, you know, start to like mm. basically understand inventory levels, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like they won't let you do that. Like you're it's it's a it's against the terms of service and they'll they'll find you probably and, and sue you. Um whereas we don't have that issue. You wanna use our imagery and go like find commercial real estate signs or find basketball hoops or like do all that kind of stuff. Like, sure, go for it, you know, um, and build derivative, derivative data products, you know, that go enhance, you know, certain capabilities. You should go do that. Right. Um, and so we don't have any of those. Restrictions. So we, we hear a lot of that as well. That's super interesting. So you are essentially, you're enabling use cases where for Google, right. Someone would go to Google and try to use their data and Google is like safeguarding their revenue. They're like, no, you're, you're building a competing product or you're creating derivatives of our data and reselling it at a profit. We want to capture that market. You can wait until we create that product and then you can pay for that product yeah. instead of go build it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Go build yeah, you pay like a nominal fee for the for the imagery and then you go build data and then you just continue to like hit the you know the map image API and like right, like the contributors are being rewarded, right? Because the imagery is being utilized. You're being, you know, you now have a viable business um, because it's pretty cost effective. And then you're you're creating new tools, right? You're creating new capabilities. So yeah, that, that's a it's a big kind of differentiator that we don't really talk about. It, like in the mapping world, it's a it's like a known thing. Yeah, and so you could imagine, you know, someone starting a business today, if they're really entrepreneurial and they see that, you know, some of, for example, the real estate use cases that you mentioned or the insurance actuarial, whatever yeah. it is, they could start building on your data set today. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to mention one thing because I'm sure a lot of people who like watch your show or listen to your show um, are probably familiar with OpenStreetMap, right? And a lot of people will say, like watching this, say like, oh, what about OpenStreetMap, right? And like you can do, you can use uh, there's some like specific things that you have to follow in terms of OpenStreetMap. We get into that more, but like, you know, you can use the underlying imagery there to like effectively create additional data products. It has to live with an OpenStreetMap, obviously. It can't just be something proprietary to you, but OpenStreetMap does that. I want to make this point in terms of OpenStreetMap, which is really important, is OpenStreetMap uses satellite imagery that's donated to them by commercial providers guess what? That is not fresh stuff. <laughs> like the, the commercial providers are not giving OpenStreetMap their freshest stuff. They're selling that. They're monetizing that. And then like after nine months or a year, year and a half, whatever time frame it is, then they say, oh yeah, OpenStreetMap, you can now have this. So what does that mean? 
all the people that are editing on top of that stale imagery are oftentimes making edits that are just wrong. And not because they're bad editors, but just because the imagery that they're utilizing is just old, right? And so I think the other advantage in terms of freshness, in terms of like map editing and map QA is like, look, we will have obviously map editors and map QA is we can now focus them on stuff that's actually fresh, right? Like if we don't have fresh location for whatever reason, because it's remote or whatever happened, um, great. Like don't focus there. But like, hey, by the way, we now have fresh stuff for this location, for this location, for this location. Focus your efforts there, right? Because now the map edits are going to be right. Um, Right. So that's kind of like another really important distinction relative to some of the other players in this market and kind of how we see ourselves differentiate. I mean, there's a lot of time that we can spend open street up, but I want to make that point because I think a lot of people, they always try to like, I gotcha, open street man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't have thought of that, but I'm sure there are listeners who are thinking of that. I'm sure there are also listeners who are hearing this and saying, oh, you're going to let people go use all this data, but like, what about privacy, right? What about privacy of the people who are creating the data? What about the privacy of the, the people who are being photographed in public on the street, their house, their yeah. car, their face? Like, how do you think about privacy at HiveMapper? Yeah, so we think about it a lot as a short version. And so there's really this privacy from two perspectives, right? Um, there's privacy from the perspective of the contributor, right? So it's, re- has, it's very, very important to us that you know, whenever you install this dash cam, that you know you're collecting imagery and that you know that that imagery is ultimately making it up, right, to, you know, the, this map that other people consume and use that imagery for. There's a, there, there are some players in the marketplace that they have these dash cams, you know, they, they sell these dash cams, and then they basically pull the imagery out from underneath the driver. The driver doesn't know that that imagery that they're collecting for their own personal purposes is now being pulled out from underneath them because there's says, says somewhere in the terms of service that the dash cam hardware manufacturers allowed to use that. We think that's wrong. Like if you think about all the things that the, if you knew like, Hey, this is pulling out, you know, people throw stuff on their dashboard. That's like personal, you know, mm-hmm. you can very quickly figure out who this person is. If you're not upfront with them about what this dash cam is and how this imagery is getting used. So that that's one. The second thing is, is that, once you create an account with HiveMapper, there's no personal information you're giving us. No email address, no phone number, no social information. We, we automatically generate it, like, kind of like Helium. We generate a three-word username for you. Um, so like none of that. We tell people, like, look, don't share this username associated to like, your personal like, Twitter account or Facebook account if you don't want people to know who you are. Right? Like, that would be a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And then we never associate the data that you collected uh, the imagery that you collected with your username anywhere on the map. It's actually delinked, right? From like once the image uploads gets QA'd uh, and then you get your honey token rewards, that image is then delinked from your username. Um, and you'll never see, if you just go to our region, we never show like, hey, this username is in this area and mapping, all that kind of stuff, like none of that association. And then all the information that's in the imagery from a bystander perspective, right? We mask or blur people's faces like Google Street View. We blur license plates, all that kind of stuff. And I, I want to go even a step further probably at some point and just blur people's entire body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not there yet from a technology perspective, but I think that we'll get there. Um, so that, you know, I don't know, someone's wearing like a weird suit or a weird dress or something like that. That's like uniquely identifies them. Right. right. Um, I shouldn't say weird, unique, 
you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not no judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can wear whatever the fuck you want to wear, but like it's it's definitely unique and people know that like you wear that, you know, dress or that suit or those pair of pants, whatever it is. Helium um, hoodie. <laughs> exactly. And so like we definitely wanted at some point blur people's entire body so that you, know, you can't associate it with them. And is that happening once you receive the imagery or is this happening like on device real time? As of this very moment, it's happening once we get the image in about two to four weeks, it'll actually happen on your phone. So like you, it, basically that image will never get uploaded until all of the privacy blurring occurs. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Oh, so using actually the phone to do it, not the dash cam itself. Yeah, it'll, we'll probably ultimately move it to the dash cam. There's a little bit more work that needs to happen in order to ultimately move it to the dash cam. But yes, like that's where it will ultimately reside. But I think that's probably like six to nine months away. Okay. And yeah, you're taking an enormous amount of imagery and like a single driver can make 10, 20 gigs of images per day. And this is exponentially growing. That sounds really expensive. <laughs> like, how are you all managing the costs here? Yeah, so... Uh, our co like, this was the first problem that we had, really, right? Which is, okay, how do you, I mean, for big companies, it's kind of funny. I hear these, these companies and they're like, oh, we're going to do like a Google Street View thing. And, you know, they all of a sudden like, you know, assemble 20 cars, 50 cars, 100 cars. And then like somebody like was like, wait, like this is really expensive. <laughs> yeah. And then ultimately gets shut down. Um, but like for us, we're like, okay, how do we get this cost down? That was like the first step, Right. So there's two primary costs. Uh, there's collection costs. We talked a little bit about that. And there's processing costs. So processing costs will be defined as how do we extract out all the objects that we care about? And then how do we ultimately store the imagery, right? And so we'll probably publish a paper about this at some point, but it's very cost effective right now. We could do most parts of the world for like a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, right? Oh my um, God. so, I mean, we're not at that scale yet. So like th those are not our bills to be very clear, but, um, right. no, it's very, very cost effective right now. We'll just get more cost effective, uh, as we move more and more of the processing to the edge, either the dash cam or the phone. So like, it's only going down, but probably like a lot of the engineering team over the last probably like six to 12 months is like, that's all they've been focused on. Okay. So you're employing multiple different techniques here. I'm assuming you've got like compression, like highly cost-effective cloud storage, you know, yeah. just like the whole nine. And we, and we don't actually upload every image, right? Like every mm -hmm. image, there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons where we just don't need it. It's like duplicative, you know, like we already saw it. There was like bad lighting, not, not that you as the driver caused anything, but just like the way the camera was hitting the sun, like produced bad imagery, like that kind of stuff. And so like we just want to discard more and more of it and just take the really good stuff. I mean, I do see like at some point in time, probably not this year, definitely not this year, probably the tail end of next year, where if you think about it, if you go back to those object detections, right, you want to know like, hey, what's the speed limit sign here, right? What's the traffic sign here? What's happening here? Um, that's, the, that's the really valuable information, but that's all being done on the device uh, or, and or the dash cam. And then you don't even take any of the imagery, right? Or you only take the imagery like when you absolutely need it, Right. When you're like, right. hey, I think I ran out. I think there's something new here. I think I have a good shot of it because the sun is at a good angle relative to the camera. And then you're like, I want that shot, right? Boom. You as a contributor still be rewarded for everything because like you still are getting you know, a lot of objects. 
And so like all of this kind of object detection type of stuff will be rolled out, you know, to your phone and to the dash cam in the coming months and years. But like, I, I think probably by the end of next year is if you actually, if you take that same driver and you say, okay, you know, do the same drive, whatever, hundred miles, 200 miles, it'll be a lot smaller than the whatever, five, six, seven gigabytes that we currently collect, like 80% less. Yeah, what I love about that from a product perspective and a business perspective, as someone who's built multiple businesses, like you always want to be able to iterate. And what's so cool about the freshness, like you can iterate on efficiency, on map fidelity, on everything. You can offer a better product over time because you're not worrying about, uh, oh man, we like we captured the data once six months ago with the exact capabilities that we had at that time and we could only process it once. You are getting like hundreds of new opportunities to process each location with new capabilities, new cost reductions, new efficiencies. So it's only going to get as a system just more efficient and higher fidelity over time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, what, what, you know, when a Google Street View um, car sees a location, it's dealing with, you know, the physical world. The physical world is a very messy place. And mm -hmm. what does that mean? It was like, okay, there's a bus in the way, so it can't see the can't see the buildings, right? There's a, a big, tall truck in front of it, so it can't see in front of it, right? It's just dealing with those problems. We deal with those problems as well. But the key difference is, is like, okay, that, that stuff happens and it happens. We don't care that much, right? Like we're going to see that location probably again tomorrow or the day after or the next week. And so whereas Google's review, like that's a big problem. They're not going to see that location for another, you know, year, maybe another five years, right? And so I think about in terms of shots on goal, right? I don't, mm -hmm. know, like, I don't know, you're a hockey fan, right? But like usually the team that has more shots on goal ends up winning. And so that's how I kind of think of it from a mapping perspective is like we're just increasing the odds of ourselves winning in terms of collecting really high quality data because we have so many more shots on goal. So, yeah, um, you know, I don't really want to go into the whole tokenomics thing. I think that's well documented. And, you know, I want to focus on things that we can uniquely talk about here that aren't documented because that's what's going to be interesting. But for people who are interested in the way that tokenomics for HiveMapper works, how the rewards are allocated, like they've got great documentation that you could go check out. Um, you know, from a high level perspective, you've divided the world into these different regions, which you're adding more of over time. And you've assigned each one essentially a weight. This is only one of the factors in the reward uh, calculation, but it's a very interesting one to me because I'm looking at the regions you've defined. And if you look at the uh, highest weighted regions, to me, they are not what I would have expected. And I'm assuming there's a really good reason for that. So like I'm going on the Hive Mapper Explorer now, I'm gonna you know sort by reward weight and the number one is Jakarta, Indonesia, and then Mexico City, and then Bangkok, uh, and then Hanoi. So yeah. like, yeah. what is it about those yeah. places? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of factors here that went into the weightings, and I think this will definitely like start continue to evolve. But I want to give people like a little bit of context as to like why the weights exist to begin with. So if you think about a map from a customer perspective, um, it would be really bad if, let's say, we map uh, you know, next year, or this year, 200 million total kilometers, right? Or let's break it down. We, we map 20 million uh, unique kilometers, but those 20 million unique kilometers were spread out over the entire world, right? And so we never, in any given region, we never actually hit, you know, 50% 50, 50 coverage, 75% coverage, ideally 99% coverage, right? That would be bad from a customer perspective, because they all, all your regions fall below that monetization threshold, 
Mm-hmm. And so it was really important to us to say, like, look, we're going to try, you can map anywhere, but let's be very open, very transparent about the fact that, like, we do want density in regions, okay? Uh, because that creates monetization opportunities for us. Um, and that's obviously good for the map, right? When I say us, I'm saying from the map, right? Like, it, it, you know, the number one question, the number two question that I get from contributors is like, hey, like, who are the customers? How are they using it? How much are they paying? Like, all that kind of stuff. Well, a big, big part of that is getting regions ultimately way beyond 75%, ultimately 99%. So that's why weights exist. It's not saying you can't map in this. It's just saying like, hey, look, you're going to definitely earn less than if you happen to be mapping in this region. So that's why they exist. Okay, so why those regions? A um, couple of factors. One is we know that there's customers in certain of those regions who want data, right? Who like want map you know, in those. So I think some of the EUs are at the top as well. So we definitely know that there are some in, in those regions that want those regions complete. The other thing is we wanted to be able to demonstrate to customers to you know the world as a whole that this doesn't only work in places like london and paris and chicago and los angeles but it works in places like jakarta right works in places like mexico city works in places like lagos nigeria right because if you don't have those cities and i think this is the mistake that google made and i mean i don't know mistake but like they started here in the u.s right they started here in san francisco Mm -hmm. and so you know, those same techniques that you work really well here in San Francisco Bay Area work well in Los Angeles. They don't work well in Lagos, Nigeria. They don't work well in Jakarta, right? And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, we could get the thing working and we can get the thing working in many different parts of the world, right? Where you have different economic levels, you have different ability to pay for the dash cam, all those factors, right? different privacy laws, et cetera. So that's the other aspect of like making sure that there was, you know, a truly global representation here. It's interesting because you have a very easy time reaching the whole globe because Wi-Fi is standardized, right? And, you know, light bounces off the objects the same in every part of the world. So you don't really have to create all these different hardware variants to hit all those regions, which is super interesting. So I want to cover one last topic that you brought up to me you guys are going to be changing the way that rewards work. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So if you look at like what's happened over the last, I don't know, couple of months here, like it's very clear that, you know, of the 4 billion honey tokens that are being minted out, the pace that of which that's occurring is slower than we expected, right? Even if you like calculate increase, like number of contributors and a bunch of other factors, like it's definitely at a lot slower pace than it, it ought to be, right? It's just too long. Um, and so we are kind of going back and like revisiting some of the assumptions in terms of like how regions are defined, how basically the number of unique road kilometers influence what is that weighting in a given region, right? The total number of regions, I think there's like 500 defined regions, like that also has like a drag, in terms of the amount. So that that's one part of what we're trying to do here. It's called MIP2. So Helium has HIPs, there's MIPs. Map improvement proposal? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is saying, look, there's two observations that we've made. One is that, let's take LA as an example. So LA is really fascinating. Like if you start, let's say, in the west side of LA, for those people familiar, right? Like Venice and Santa Monica and you know, Westwood, which is on like UCLA, stuff like that. And let's say you start with like 100 drivers in that area or 500 drivers, whatever the number is. 
it will actually, the map will gain coverage and spread throughout the entire LA region, right? 120,000 road kilometers. The idea here is that we're seeing the same thing start to happen in certain countries where it starts in like Lisbon and then it kind of spreads out, right? Starts in Amsterdam and kind of spreads out to the rest of the country. So the idea is that there's going to be these capitals, these kind of cultural capitals, and those regions will be heavily incentivized, right? Like get, let's get these to like 99% coverage. And then the idea is that it spreads out to all the other cities in that country. Like so Paris, right, is going to be one of these cultural capitals. And then the hope is that it spreads to the rest of, of France, right? So Lyon and Marseille and Toulouse and Nice and all these kinds of places. So that's one. And then the other part of this MIP is also getting not just a region to 100% coverage, but like getting an entire country to uh so I think there's two countries that are going to fall into that. So there's going to be Portugal and uh, and Netherlands. And what we're trying to demonstrate to customers and to like other potentials, like look what happens once you get an entire country to wow. like 99% coverage, right? Like the possibilities in terms of all the use cases, um, in terms of all the monetization capabilities, et cetera, just increases exponentially, right? So that's what some of these this this there's a lot rolled into this MIP too. It's a really important one, um, mm-hmm. but we want to go you know with the community. We want to go quickly um, because we see the issues, and I think a lot of people in the community see the issues as well, and we want to fix those issues, and we want to fix those issues quickly. Awesome. Well, love to see the community engagement. Uh, where can people go if they want to learn more about MIP two? The foundation is working on this right now. They're going to publish it to their Twitter account, to their to the foundation's blog, and then the Discord server. There's there's going to be a new channel um, that's created just around MIP two, so that the community can really engage and provide feedback and discuss and debate the topics as well. Awesome. Well, Ariel, this has been incredible. Super interesting, exciting business you're building here. Multiple network effects layered on top of each other. And you've got like absolutely monopolistic, very tough competition. But I think you guys have a real chance at doing this. And lots of synergies with Helium as well. Not just in your similarities of token model, but also you literally use Helium. And I'm sure that that will be increased in the future as these networks both continue to grow and evolve. There's so many ways to just imagine synergies between these two. And I think that anyone who's participated in Helium and owns a car will be very interested in participating in HiveMapper, at least conceptually. You know, maybe they uh, maybe they will want to get involved driving themselves. Maybe it doesn't make sense because they don't drive as much as would make sense for uh, what HiveMapper, uh, you know, is most suited to. But that being said, how can people, if they're listening to this and they're just like getting super excited about maps, how can they get involved? Um, yeah, you go, so there's two ways you can get involved today. So one is you can get a dash cam, you can get out there and drive. So you just go to highmapper.com. There's two different dash cams you can choose from. The one that is shipping today that if you order it, you'll get it like in you know a couple days or a week, depending upon where you are in the world. That's the Highmapper dash cam. The S model is coming a little bit later. So definitely encourage you to get the one that's shipping right now. That's one way. The other way is you can participate in map QA editing. So that's just from behind your desk you know, basically looking at images and making sure that they're high quality and all that kind of stuff. So that's obviously, you know, just like, hey, you got 10 extra minutes of time when you're on the bus or the subway or wherever you're at, just kind of a fun way to participate and be helpful in the network. Yeah, definitely recommend that to anyone who's curious about what HiveMapper is all about. Just connect your phantom wallet and uh, go through some QA images. It'll, it'll, 
teach you a lot about like the type of data that's out there being collected and you'll get a you'll get a small reward for it too and you know we didn't even mention this but hive mapper is built entirely on top of solana probably the only blockchain that would work for this type of thing yeah love to see that as well it's my favorite chain i'm not shy about it love to see things being built on solana yeah, I think it's like, you know, with Helium moving to Solana, us on it, like there's a couple others like of this, you know, obviously D- I think it's called deep pin, I guess now is the term that we're Ugh. coalescing around. I don't know if I like it. I, we got to work on that. Yeah. But maybe that was, maybe this is the one. I don't know. We, we're trying. I think there's like a momentum, right? Like you, you have a lot of other projects kind of all moving to that, you know, that makes a ton of sense. Yep, absolutely. All right, Ariel, all right, thanks man. so much for your time. This Thank has you. been awesome. And I'm sure we'll have more to talk about in the future. Absolutely. This is great. Thank you, Armand. Thanks. Take care.